Dr. Michael O'Sullivan, you are lecturing here in All Hallows and your latest book is um, entitled How Roman Catholic Theology Can Transform um, Sexual Violence, Male Sexual Violence Against Women. Um, it's, it's an interesting title. Some commentators would say that some theologies are actually very anti-women or anti-the-body and yet you think that Roman Catholic theology has, has a positive role to play. Yeah, it's a book about... Um male violence, physical and sexual uh, male violence against women and how theology and Catholic faith and that can be involved but can be involved positively as well as negatively and would be my hope really that the book can contribute to a positive response in the parish of the Catholic Church towards this dreadful situation that's a worldwide problem. There's no country in the world that can call itself a developing country where violence against women is concerned, so we're all really developing countries in that sense. Uh, Yeah, I think there are many resources in the Catholic tradition which can be positive with regard to this issue, but unfortunately it has to be said too that um, aspects and that and meanings... uh, in the uh, Christian tradition have been have functioned very negatively for women and have only added to the violence against them. I'm thinking, for example, of a study that was done in the Netherlands, which I treat in the book, um, in the early 1980s. It was a study of incest, and the women were, you know, a lot of them came up in a Catholic background. They suffered incest in their families, and it emerged in the study that the kind of Catholic tradition that they received colluded in their violence in that it further disempowered them when the violence came on came on them. I'm thinking, for example, there of um, notions of sin, sexuality, women's sexuality and salvation. The doctrine of salvation was received by the women in ways that made them feel that God is a very punishing God who has them on this life to try them out, test them out and prove that they're worthy of eternal life with him. Uh, in the next life and that when they experience the incest then for example uh, they may have experienced it as also a trial to test them out to see where they fit to live with this very demanding God Um, then sin for example some of the women have identified that the notions of sin they received didn't help them at all that they um, thought that women in particular were the source of all sin, where the Adam and Eve story was understood, that Eve was responsible for the downfall of the world and for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as Tertullian said, was it not for women, Jesus Christ wouldn't have had to die. And so when you internalise these kinds of messages from very early on in life and then something like this happens to you, you can feel, well, as one woman said to me uh, once, if it wasn't for Eve, this battery that I experience on a regular basis from my partner... Uh, wouldn't be happening to me that uh, I'm a woman like Eve look what she did I've got that kind of makeup in me um, is it any wonder I'm being treated the way I am and is it your contention then that whilst uh, in the writings and Christian theology and the early fathers whom you've mentioned that um, there may have been a distinction and a hierarchy that re- religious were better than, say, lay in terms of a state, that within the lay state then women were always at the bottom of the pile in terms of how they were understood, as you say, the Eve principle and mm. other types of theology. Ah, yes, there's no doubt there's plenty of evidence to show that that is the kind of um, model, if you like, of the world that uh, has existed over a very long period. Um, the Eve story is one of the stories, the Mary of Magdala story, the way Mary of Magdala has been understood. I mean, there is no evidence in the scripture that she was a prostitute, um, and yet that's the way she has been uh, talked about down through the centuries. Uh, one theory about that is is that she was a very prominent leader in the, in the early Jesus movement, 
and early Christian movement then as well after the resurrection and that in order to discredit her leadership uh, this kind of story was spread around about her. So that's another example and of course the way the uh, married mother of Jesus has been uh, viewed as well that uh, you know she was a virgin, she was pure, all these things that many women have felt that uh, you know as women who are, who are mothers and um, are living in the world with all the issues they have to face that this kind of role model has been very unhelpful to them and has kind of caused this kind of a split within them about how do you be a holy woman if this is the way to be a holy woman and their lives cannot really follow that pattern so it's just you know uh, the way in which the Christian story has been told and there is a whole other way of telling it for example um, Mary the mother of Jesus when I worked in Latin America for some years and I'd ask the uh, people sometimes what did Mary mean to them? And the um, the main answer that came back was she, she was somebody like ourselves, some a, a, an ordinary down-to-earth human individual who had to struggle in life the way we have and who believed in a God of the Magnificat, where she says in the Bible, according to the Bible, that God is a God who would bring the mighty down from their thrones and lift up the lowly. And this is the God that she would have passed on to Jesus. Because if you read the Jesus story, there was a real incarnation and that therefore he had a real humanity. The faith of his mother would have been a very strong formative influence on him. And if her faith was the faith of the Magnificat, as the Bible there tells us, then he was, uh, if you like, socialized into an experience and view of God as being a God who was on the side of those who were downtrodden and who needed to be lifted up and all that. And is it any wonder, you know, I, I would see that then as an influence on his own way of being a person and being being the saviour of the world um, in human history. He took the sides of those who were downtrodden himself, children, women, the economically poor, the outcasts like the Samaritans and so on. And that, uh, you know, if you read the story of Mary as one which actually contributed to Jesus becoming this kind of saviour for the world, and that God in choosing Mary, therefore, was not just choosing a womb in which Jesus could come to be and be born, um, but was choosing a certain kind of woman, a woman with a certain kind of faith, a certain way of being a person, and all this was, 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 if you like, going to form him and that this was needed for him. So there is though, there are those commentators who would say that Jesus was countercultural in a patriarchal society, but perhaps the weight of patriarchy. Christianity couldn't withstand that for all its best elements. That being the case, patriarchy may endorse that women are inferior to men. But where does the violence come in? Because that's what you specifically look at, and you cite cases around the world of continuing and enduring systematic violence against women. In every religious tradition, it seems there is this problem about how they regard women and how they treat women and uh, how some of their meanings about what it is to be a believer in that tradition functions. But violence, you know, if a picture is formed through how a person is to be viewed, it, it can lead other people then to treat these people in that very violent way even. I mean, if a woman is not really fully regarded as a full human being and that... Uh, you know that God loves her as much as any man then men can believe that they're superior and that certain actions on their part can be accepted and unfortunately things like the maleness of Jesus and the fatherhood of God have functioned destructively for women I would say research does show for example that um, some people have regarded the maleness of Jesus to mean that uh, maleness is closer to God and that maleness also was more able to bring about the um, the work of redemption 
um, that a woman wouldn't be able to bring about the work of redemption and wouldn't be able to image God sufficiently and reveal God sufficiently well. Now, if you have people who have internalized these kinds of messages, um, you do help to create a situation where some of them uh, can view themselves as superior to the others. And the people who are experiencing themselves as inferior can actually believe then that they can be treated too uh, badly by, by those who are regarding themselves as superior. The fatherhood of God, you know, too, has functioned very destructively for women because obviously if God is the Father Almighty, then where does that leave mothers and, and maternity? It obviously puts it in a lower place. And then you get families structured on the basis of these kinds of beliefs that the Father Almighty, the Father has to be the Father Almighty in the family, the mother has to be below the Father, the children are below both, and there's a whole hierarchy. And you have a religious tradition and religious meanings um, helping to form and feed this kind of understanding and, and, and way of being, being, being in the world. And that, even up to recently, a taboo from biblical times and, 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 and carried down of around childbirthing, around blood um, around very much feminine cycles that led even until very recent times, for example, to the experience of churching in, in, that many women listening would be familiar with. Absolutely, yes. I remember when I was in Ethiopia some years back and seeing the women on their knees outside the cathedral and it was because, uh, because they were menstruating, they didn't feel worthy to be uh, to enter the cathedral. So these kinds of messages that because a woman menstruates that uh, she can't enter the cathedral as fully as a man can, what's that saying about how she regards herself as a woman with God? What's it saying about how God is uh, towards her, that uh, God wouldn't want her to come into the cathedral as a full uh, woman uh, because of this? I mean, this is terribly destructive for self-image, self-esteem, surely. Um, so that whole aspect of women and women's lives uh, has, has too been part of this story. So in your book, do you try to reconstruct what a new theology would be that would uh, perhaps re redress the situation? I do, yeah. Some of the things I would just perhaps single out for, for mention... Uh, take the maleness of Jesus, which as I mentioned earlier, has functioned destructively for many women. My view in the book is is that um, the issue perhaps is less why was Jesus a man and more why is it that more men are not like Jesus? Because if more men were like Jesus, the issue of the maleness of Jesus wouldn't be the problem that uh, has been for many. Secondly, I would say that Jesus, by being a man, was able to model to men how to be men with women and was modelling to women what they were entitled to expect from men in their relationships with them. And it's clear, too, that Jesus, you know, he was able to perhaps do things as a man in his society, which perhaps if he had come as a woman he mightn't have been able to do. But that was only to say, really, that he's trying to, his maleness then was at the service of the values of God. And I think what we, when we look at the maleness of Jesus, we have to ask, like, what are the values that are being served by this maleness? And the values do include the emancipation of women from oppression of all kinds. An example of how the religious tradition was feeding into the oppression of women in the society of Jesus' time, which he stood up against, is the story of the woman whom the men wanted to stone to death. They said that she'd been caught in adultery and that the religious law allowed them to have her stoned to death. And Jesus very clearly stood up against this and therefore was standing up against the use of religion to justify violence against women. 
And, uh, of course, we don't know whether that story, uh, that the charge brought against him was true and he had for start. But, you know, what, what, because we know that there are many instances where uh, charges are brought against people for all kinds of reasons which may not be true. Certainly what is very clear in the story is that Jesus was not in favour of violence against the woman and was certainly not in favour of religion being used to bring about the violence against the woman. But I think the very fact that um, the Pharisees brought the woman to Jesus with this story uh, and it said in the Bible that they did so to trap him as well signifies really that he, he was known to be somebody who stood up for women and that they wanted to try and use this precisely against him to see how he'd be uh, in that situation because if he put himself on the side of the woman in terms of not wanting her to suffer the violence they wanted to perpetrate he would be saying that she wasn't in favour of the religious law being used in this way and then they would say well now they've kind of got him on those grounds but he did take that view that the religious law should not be used against the woman and he was courageous enough to do so because I think what we can overlook too sometimes is the courage that must have, must have, been, that must have been required of Jesus to take stands that he took um you know, it was clear that story there that they were out to get him, as they said, in the, in the, as they say in the Bible story. So Jesus had to be very courageous to do what he did, knowing that perhaps he too was going to be very vulnerable and could suffer greatly uh, afterwards. And in the story in Luke's Gospel 13, um, Luke 13, 10 to 17, you have the story of the crippled woman. And that's a story where Jesus is invited into the synagogue to give a religious teaching on the Sabbath day. And... Uh, he notices that there is this woman who's bent over from all the years of whatever she was suffering from. And instead of attending to the text he was asked to come and speak about on, in the synagogue that day, he deals with the text of the woman's life. And I read that story really as a story of Jesus taking a stand around the suffering not only of a single woman from physical infirmity. But uh, again, when I was in Africa, I noticed the women carrying the jars on their heads and, the, and, and, and bundles of wood on their backs and these were economically poor women and their bodies often not developed because of their poverty and so on and not really equipped to take these loads. And the research shows that their spines are damaged by carrying such loads when their bodies are not fully developed. So I, I think if we apply what I call a hermeneutics of the imagination to the reading of texts like that story, uh, hermeneutics of the imagination, by that I mean that the imagination is allowed to function as a principle of interpretation of texts, obviously the imagination can't be allowed to run riot, but if you allow your imagination to be formed by, for example, my experience there in, the, in those African countries where I saw these things happening and I learned through the research that yes, these women's spines are damaged by the loads they carry, then I think it's possible that the woman in that story was somebody whose infirmity came about from cultural practices that uh, perhaps the culture had selected her and women to carry these loads and that uh, the damage to her spine that perhaps she was only one of a, of a number of many women who were suffering in this way and that Jesus in dealing with her situation was addressing not just the physical infirmity of a single woman but was addressing a whole culture and how they were treating women and uh, he did it on the Sabbath day in the synagogue uh, which kind of if you like um, made it very clear that for him um, the religious tradition and all that could, was not to be used uh, against women but certainly uh, precisely for their, for their benefit. And uh, in that story we find that uh, Jesus was never again invited back to the synagogue in Luke's Gospel and then in his, towards the end of the Gospel we learn that Jesus is accused of being an agitator of the people and that this contributed to his death. Now I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons why Jesus was killed 
was because of his stance for women. That that story is it is is, is that's the, but that, I I think that that story, uh, and the fact he was not invited back to synagogue again, that he's accused of being an agitator of the people, then his trial. Um, suggests to me that a reason why he was killed was because of his stance for women. So there is a way of, of rereading the, the male Jesus as saviour in ways that can be put on the side of women. And that's one one aspect I bring out in the book um, and how to read the scripture as well. No, th- that hermeneutic of imagination, you believe, would yield a very fruitful and positive and hopeful outcome for women in society and the way they're treated, and particularly in its extremes when it results in violence. Violence is quite commonplace, even in Ireland, against women, as statistics show in terms mm. of domestic violence and the murder rate. If theologians are to look at this, in, in that there's a Roman Catholic theology, do you see it also then having implications for the structure of the church itself? Because it's one thing to write a theology, but it's another thing if you are in your own institutional structure, uh, creating conditions that are actually unjust toward women. Well, before my ordination... That's a good number of years ago now. I remember a woman, a friend of mine, saying to me, are you, are you going to go ahead and get ordained? Uh, and I said to her, why would you think uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't go ahead? And she said, well, because of the situation of women, and I know you care about that. I must say that really made me sort of sit up. Uh, I did care about the situation of women, um, but I hadn't thought that it would be enough for me to consider not going ahead to ordination over but I said to her, well, I said, look, I will go ahead. But I said that uh, I will do my best to make sure that my priesthood will be at the service of the situation of women and will not be uh, a contributing factor um, in the other direction. So I have tried over all the years since my ordination to do what I can in different ways around that situation. And I hope that, like the male Jesus, that I'm a part of a structure that's there within it trying to change it for the better.